Welcome, listeners, to the First Things podcast. This is Rusty Reno in New York at the editor's desk, which is, of course, the title of this podcast series where we speak to authors of essays in recent issues of First Things. And today, I'm pleased to have Scott Yenner with me, the author of Sexual Counter-Revolution from the November issue of First Things. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Rusty, for having me. Well, we the topic of your piece, which is quite wide-ranging, is, of course, the sexual revolution. You call it a rolling revolution. Why rolling? Uh, I call it a rolling revolution because it never seems to finish. Um, it keeps gaining speed. Uh, there's always leading edges to it, but it is set for itself uh, unfinishable goals. Um, that need to fundamentally transform human nature, but uh, always runs into another limit that is uh, placed by human nature in its way. So, for instance, feminism has set for itself the goal of uh, creating a world beyond gender, and which means that there will be really no differences between men and women uh, in the world. But what ends up really happening is that it kind of changes one moray or changes one law, and then there's still a difference between men and women. So in order to achieve this world beyond gender, they need to change another moray and another law. And so in this way, I see things like transgenderism as a wave or a role of the rolling revolution to try to take the world beyond gender um, that began with feminism, but you know now has culminated in transgenderism. And there's probably something lying on the other side of transgenderism um, I also consider to be the, the attempt to take the world beyond repression, to be part of this rolling revolution. Human beings naturally have a certain sense of shame, a certain sense of modesty. They want to connect sex with love and enduring relationships. The sexual liberation movement wants to seize all of those things as an expression of repression. So you can destroy the cultural norms of marriage. You can have publicly acceptable of access to pornography. You can make homosexuality to be a norm in society. Those are all parts of the rolling revolution, but human beings still attach love to enduring relations and sex. Human beings still have a sense of modesty and shame. So the sexual revolution, uh, the liberation movement, excuse me, always has more work to do. And uh, when there's always more work to do, there's always another role that is needed in the revolution. Mm. So in your in your piece, one of the main concepts, which I thought was very helpful to me, is the notion of a sexual constitution. And as I understand it, this notion is that every society has a, a template or it has um, channels, if you will, that are use a different metaphor than the political one of constitution, has a channels that channels our sexual behavior. And our sexual really actually shaped our sexual desires in, in, in themselves, and not just our behavior. So, what, help 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 the listeners understand this this idea that that we are shaped by a constitution, a sexual constitution. Yeah, I mean, I borrow this idea from the from Aristotle's idea of a regime. That uh, in every political community, there's certain ideas of, that attach to shame and honor, uh, what is good, what is advantageous. 
what is Josh, and um, and and this even affects human sexuality. So we think of sexuality is, or human sex is one of the most private things behind closed doors between two people. But actually, like the way we do it, uh, the uh, number of times we do it, how it is connected to um, other human institutions like marriage are part of the reigning opinions in a political community. The lie of modernity, of our late republic, is that everyone is free to choose. But actually, we honor certain kinds of sex. We mm -hmm. honor certain kinds of women, certain kinds of men that are connected in one way or another to sex. And uh, so we have displaced the old sexual constitution that connects sex with marriage, that tries to promote a, you know, a modified manly man and a feminine woman. We've replaced it with a new sexual constitution that honors a different kind of man, an ally. And it honors a different kind of woman, the independent woman, so-called. And it honors a different approach to attaching sex to our lives. Um, it blesses uh, premarital sex or non-marital sex. Uh, it blesses a cohabitation. And, uh, and then, you know, when it blesses these things, you get more of it. So the lie of liberalism is that there's public neutrality. And I'm just trying to apply that particular idea to family life, marriage, and sex life. Yeah, so the idea of a regime, you could have said sexual regime, I suppose. Yes. Is that a regime, regime organizes and shapes public sentiment, and it's not just a set of laws, written laws, that even more fundamental, I suppose, as you point out, is what we honor and what we shame. And, you know, I I think you're right here that if you look at, at um you know, they don't do home economics anymore, do they, in schools, which is, and then shop class. I remember when I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1978. It was still the old constitution where boys were encouraged to, to be the, learn the skills necessary to be the husband who could fix things around the house. And the girls were encouraged to be the kind of women who could be the, what we used to call homemakers. Um, and that's completely going by the board. I mean, that's been all been eliminated in the, in the under the ideology of uh, of um, you know female empowerment and to combat toxic masculinity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's uh, it's been eliminated by the new sexual constitution. Now, I'm ten years younger. I've just uh, figured out. I graduated from high school in 1988, and my only C was in shop class. Um, so I'm not saying it prevented me from getting into Northwestern, but thank God it did. But um. <laughs> um, So, yes, I mean, you look at, um, you go through really in the piece, I think very helpfully, you talk about second wave feminism and its effects on men and women. And you talk about gay liberation and how it's, it's reorganized and reprioritized um, uh, sexual um, expectations, really. I mean, I think of, for instance, in gay liberation, I, I think that the gay man, especially the gay man, has become the exemplary citizen in our sort of late modern commercial republic. You know, he exemplifies self-care, um, discreet and exquisitely tasteful consumption, and 
is the paragon of independence because um, sexual independence, because unlike women or I mean, women always have this problem, which is that sexual intercourse is related to procreation. And so the gay man is truly sexually liberated in, from nature. And so it's, it's uh, st sterile sex without the, without the, uh, the burdens of, of fertility. Um, so I, he, I just think that in our sexual constitution, that sort of person is held up as, as the ideal type. Is that too exaggerated on my part? Well, I mean, I think there's an ideal man and an ideal woman. Um, and, uh, you know, the ideal woman that complements that is the woman of independence. Uh, generally, she's athletic. Um, her, her shape and figure would not allow her to actually continue menstruating. Uh, and often uh, is, is the case in our female models and those actresses who are on television. Um, it's, it's difficult to have a body type that is divorced from motherhood uh, more clearly than our independent woman. And mm. so, yeah, I think that, and both of them are excellent employees. Uh, they're excellent uh, mid-level bureaucratic employees or higher, uh, depending on the level of ambition, especially among gay men. Uh, so they're, they're people without responsibilities at home. They'll be able to sink more time into their job and more meaning and more identity into their jobs. So they become real important parts of, to use the, uh, an overused word, the neoliberal order, because they're, they're detached from anything that would keep them in a particular place, like a family or a country or a church. And, uh, and so I think they are, it's very important that they are exemplary, uh, um, you know, manifestations of the new order. There always has to be kind of an ideal guy and an ideal gal, uh, and that people aspire to that is honored. And you can see it in our, in our advertisements, in our movies, um, what at least Hollywood would have us honor and to, a, to a large extent, what our laws honor. And, uh, and I think you're right that it's not the father of seven. It's not father knows best. Uh, it's not uh, Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, it's much more likely to be the gay man and the independent woman. Yeah, I think, um, I can't remember who it was, but some Silicon Valley um, uh, entrepreneur who said that, you know, for IBM in 1965, the ideal employee was a married man. Why is that? Because he's reliable. He needs the, the job. He needs to succeed in the job to provide for his family. So he's motivated. And this entrepreneur said, "Well, today the ideal employee is the un, you know somebody who's unmarried, ideally, uh, for precisely the reason he gave exactly the reasons you gave, which is that that employee will devote more hours to the job than a married person will, and he'll also be um, just eminently movable." So you can move the pawn on the chessboard without any resistance, as you would if uh, your kids are in school and, you know, you can't move across the country without uprooting your family and so on and so forth. So there is a way in which the sexual regime dovetails with the economic and political ideals of our, as you call, neoliberal order. Yeah. And, and I mean, I would just add one thing to that, you know, the you know, there, there's a root. Human beings have to think their lives are meaningful <laughs> and they have to dedicate themselves to something higher than themselves. And uh, I mean, this is just a truth about our nature. And when you take away the country, 
and when you take away God and you take away the family, you're left with investing a lot of your, you know, the higher thing in your career and, uh, and having, having made changes in a particular corporation or invented an app or adopted a new human resource, um, you know, dictate. And, you know, this is what lends meaning to lives. And, you know, I mean, I think that I call it the career mystique in my book. Um, and, you know, it's just a lot to expect out of a J-O-B job. Well, and, and also you point out in, in your piece, and I, and I think in your book as well, um, which I, I strongly commend uh, uh, to readers. Um, and, yeah, the, um, and it's, the book is, it's the, the, the renewal of family life. Recovery. The, recovery, the recovery, the recovery of family life. Um, I strongly recommend it because it develops many of the themes in in this article in a in a more detailed way. Um, I found it to be a very um, powerful book book to clarify my own intuitions about what's going wrong. And one of the things you emphasize in your book and in the article, although it's more muted in the article, is that you you do spend a lot of time about second wave feminism, and you've written about it elsewhere. But the argument you make there make a number of occasions is that the feminist revolution and the socialization, the socialization of girls is oriented towards the needs of upper middle class women, uh, you know, basically college educated, career bound, um, high, highly ambitious women. And that, that this sort of class uh, is, is a way in which the upper class has co-opted the sexual constitution to serve its own interests. Yeah, it's it's a totally a thing, right? Um, that, you know, marriage statistically for the upper class isn't that different than it was in 1980. The divorce rate is about the same. I mean, it's a little bit higher than it was in 1980, but it's not markedly different. Um, the number of people who ultimately marry in the upper classes is not that different than it was in 1980. It's a little lower, um, but it's about the same. Whereas the effects downstream of our intentional cultivation of a new sexual constitution has been the destruction of marriage, I mean, veritable destruction of marriage, among the lower and middle classes of America and lower middle class. So if you don't have a college degree, marriage has extremely declined since 1980 gone from like 80% of the people will marry to 40% of the people will marry. Yeah, the I think I made some observations that if you're if you're born in 2021 and your mother has a high school diploma, the odds are very strongly against your growing up in an intact family. Yes, no, exactly. And it's it's and you know, it's a civilizational crisis. Um these are the people who need marriage more than anyone else. Uh they need to have uh, you know, direction in life pointing them toward how to live a happy life. And we've pointed them kind of away from it. And once again, there's only so many things you can do in order to lend meaning to your life. You can belong to a church. You can you know, belong to a country. You can belong to a family or a job. And for the most of human history, like family and church are at the center of the things that give your life meaning. Mm -hmm. And when you destroy those things and you don't replace it with like, like a kind of despicable job, but that you can kind of pretend that gives life meaning. Like, and that's a situation you have in the lower class. 
And, um, and you know, it's very sad um, among blacks in urban areas, among whites in rural areas. We're, we're seeing the same consequences of the destruction of the forms of marriage and the old sexual constitution, which is, you know, there's no connection between sex and marriage. There's no connection between parenting and marriage. There's no uh, higher meaning that lends, uh, that lends uh, you know, direction to life uh, coming from churches. And, uh, you know, this is the crisis of the two Americas. And, uh, you know, it's a genuine crisis. And, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that I would like to see if there ever is a national populist leader again, is that leader to actually demand more out of our middle and lower class citizens, uh, our fellow citizens, to say, like, these things have been destroyed. Marriage has been destroyed among among your subpopulation, and it's up to you to find ways of rebuilding it. <laughs> and well, uh, I think I'm a little more aggressive than you are. I think I would like to see a political populist basically challenge and say, "Look, who ruined marriage?" To you know, because pe- my experience is that sort of in this in this destroyed um, sort of neutron bomb is going off and working class America, people know that something is wrong. Ordinary people know they don't want to live this way. So they need to be actually politicized and their political imaginations need to be energized so that they can get their pitchforks and attack the people who ruined marriage. Well, because um, if I mean, here we are, I agree with you, we have 100,000 people dying of drug overdose death and our elite are preoccupied with transgender rights. That affects a microscopic portion of the population. Um, it's a it's a colossal instance of leadership malpractice. It seems to me in our country. I mean, you end with that note in your in your piece, but I mean, let's let's pivot to that. Let's let's talk about a few couple, just a couple of ideas that you have to what should we be fighting for to promote what you call the sexual counter-revolution. I love the counter-revolutionary language. It's got a nice edge to it. <laughs> what do you think is like, what, what's, what, are, what are one or two things you think would actually make a difference? Yeah. Um, so one of the, one of the centerpieces that I emphasize is that, you know, we're not crabs. We can't walk backwards. We can't rejuvenate the old sexual constitution in all of its ways. The circumstances mm-hmm. have changed. And uh, so how do we adapt to the new circumstances, but still try to uh, establish the idea that marriage is central to happiness and men and women should be acting differently in marriage and making different contributions to it? How can we put more burdens on families so that they have more responsibilities? Mm -hmm. That should be our goal, that we want you to have the freedom to achieve responsibilities. Uh, in these new circumstances. So, you know, making education, the cent- uh, the education of children, the central responsibility of parents, not public schools, is, right. you know, an element of how to revitalize family life. Now, many families won't be able to handle it. Right. And- no, we are in this kind of situation where we're tempted to create yet another prosthetic for our failing family culture. Yeah. But- then you get this enabled helplessness, yes. uh, learned helplessness, and the situation only gets worse. And so you're you're kind of proposing a kind of societal tough love, yeah. Um, saying, "Hey, man up! You know, here's your 
your tuition credit that you need to spend and you need to actually put some time into figuring out which school's best for your child. Yeah, I mean, families are unemployed, you know, and, and, and the Biden administration and modern liberalism and the sexual liberation movement, all of them are intending to unemploy families. Like, it's not about anything serious. It's about emotional feelings and uh, closeness and b- emotional bonds. No, it's about mm. serious duties that actually have eternal implications for all of those who are involved in it. And, uh, and so, you know, piling responsibilities on them. I mean, just as Social Security removed the responsibilities that children feel toward parents, public yes. education relieves the responsibilities that parents feel toward their own children. And we're at a ripe moment in our politics where more and more people are recognizing this particular problem. And uh, so it's my belief that that should be an intentional, this isn't about improving education. (laughs) This isn't about increasing competition. It's It's about devolving responsibilities on institutions that need to bear them. And then, you know, another aspect of what I would suggest as part of a counter-revolution is uh, is a different approach to uh, our ideas of women's employment. Um, mm. We have a lot of laws that, uh, you know, when they see disparities between, between men and women, there's an implication that this is the result of systematic sexism or something. And uh, no, we should be taking the opposite approach. We should consider it to be a great achievement if fewer women work full-time. I expect there'll always be about a third, 25% uh, surveys suggest women who will invest more of their identity in careers than in their families. But we need to be making policies that support women in their aspirations to be mothers first and employees second, because mothering will actually lead to more happiness and lead to uh, a, a society that's at peace with itself. And so my suggestion on that score is to emphasize what I call part-time work. Um, jobs that lend themselves to kind of picking up and putting down, uh, nursing, um, teaching, are great jobs that you can pick up when you're young and drop when, you're, uh, when you want to prioritize mother mothering. You can work part-time. Uh, you can pick it up later on and work part-time. We sh- instead of making sure that 50% of medical students are females and 50% are males, like that's just that. that I mean, that has downstream corruption on the medic, uh, uh, corrupting effects on the medical profession. Um, most of those women are going to end up working part time. We have doctor shortages as a result. Why is that our aspiration? Our aspiration should be to point people in ways that they can live lives that are consistent with their happiness and society's peace. And uh, so emphasizing part-time work among women as opposed to full-time careerism among women would be a great, you know, like a, 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 a change, a revolution in how we approach uh, the issue of shaping sex into gender. You, you did mention a kind of hopeful sign, which is that there is an increasing awareness that, uh, that something is wrong in the relation. We have, you know, parents said, school board meetings now and it revolves around things like critical race theory so it's a, to, you could say that that's the spark plug that's igniting the combusted to combustion um, but there is a general sense are there other areas where you are you see hopeful signs that um, yeah I mean I I think that the biggest leverage point uh, that we have is the fact that 
this new sexual constitution is leading to a lot of misery. It's leading mm. to a lot of medications. Uh, when Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique in 1963, or released it in 1963, uh, she said that one of the reasons she knew that women were kind of unhealthy, they were bored, um, the, that the reason was that they were taking a lot of tranquilizers, as it was called then. Right. Well, the percentage of young women who are medicated, heavily medicated now, is actually way higher than it was at any point in Betty Friedan's life, right? I mean, part of that's uh, a change in the number of drugs there are and the way they're prescribed. But, you know, according to some surveys, you know, we're talking 30%, 40%. There was one out of University of Minnesota right before uh, the so-called pandemic hit. There was 46% of women in the University of Minnesota system were medicated. Like, that's an incredible number. And That's not uh, a good sign. But it's an indication that there's some misery and unhappiness that can be tapped into, that we can explain why this is the case. And then I think point toward uh, ways that we can like, revise our current sexual constitution toward, you know, actually satisfying people's uh, minds and hearts. Well, from your lips to God's ear, Scott, um, I, I certainly hope uh, there is a change. And you mentioned medication, but I would even add the much noted rise in deaths of despair that not only has this sexual revolution taken a toll on people's happiness, but it's taken a toll to can be measured in lives. And we desperately need a, a political and cultural conversation to be honest about the costs of the last 50 years. So thank you so much for your article and, and thanks for, for um, that your great book. So. Thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rusty.